Listener Production. So there's a really interesting new podcast that we wanted to tell you about. It's a documentary series that's just come out and it's called Secrets We Keep, Shame, Lies and Family. Yeah, it's actually by a friend of mine, a journalist uh, who works with the Listener Network. Her name's Amelia Oberhart. Tom, I remember she told me a while back about this crazy story that had happened in her family where someone showed her a photo at her mum's wake and, oh my gosh, she decided to follow this up as a podcast and I'm so glad she did because it has opened this Pandora's box of family history which has included forced adoptions, shotgun marriages and secret families. It is so true that sometimes truth really is stranger than fiction. Wow, that is so crazy. It was a photo after her mum had passed away that unearthed all this, this truth about the real history of their family. Mm. Um, yeah, get around that one. It's a new one. It's called Secrets We Keep, Shame, Lies and Family. On one hand, it's such a bizarre story, but a lot of these things that happen are actually really common in a lot of people's families' histories. All right, let's get into today's briefing for this huge moment in Matilda's history. Fowler on the angle. Van Egmond. Honey Russo! And it may be a goal that carries Australia all the way to the quarterfinals. Yes, it did. 2-0 for the Matildas last night. 75,000 people there watching. And it has been an amazing World Cup so far. The crowds have been so strong, not just for the Matildas matches, but across all of the matches, including all kinds of countries from all over the world. There's been an average of 30,000 people turning up to the games. So raises a huge question, Katrina. What does this mean for the future of the women's game? Well, hopefully it means it's a rosy one. Um, And in this briefing, we speak to someone who's been deep in the game for decades. Moya Dodd was a vice captain of the Australian team in the 80s and then became a FIFA executive. It's like someone who's reading a book that's fabulous and you've known it's a great book and then your friend reads it and they're like, that was a great book. And you're like, yeah, isn't it? You know, you can kind of feel that sense of buzz around the country. Yeah, she's got a really interesting perspective. She tells this mind-blowing story how the women's football game was actually banned 100 years ago in England. It was banned for 50 years. And as we can all see now, it's made an incredible comeback since then. So we'll trace the journey of the Women's World Cup and also look at where it's going in the future, given it is just such a strong event. So that is our briefing, that interview. Um, Here are the headlines, of course, starting um, with some of the details from last night's match. Well, as we just heard, the Matildas are now through to FIFA Women's World Cup quarterfinals as Sam Kerr returned to the field in the 2-0 victory against Denmark. The country has wanted to see this superstar take the field and she'll get her moment now. What a moment. Uh, So she came off the bench in the second half of the tournament for 10 minutes, but her teammates, they'd already got things done. Uh, Caitlin Ford opened up the scoring while Hayley Rasso put the result beyond doubt, scoring their second goal with 20 minutes to go. So what happens now? Well, the Matildas will either take on Morocco or France in Brisbane on Saturday in the quarterfinals. That's going to be a big day. Uh, We've also got the opening of our Eka Festival, which, you know, 
everyone who knows about Eka, they're going to be divided. Do we watch the Matildas? Do we go to the opening night of the Eka, Tom? Um, but I'm sure, you know, there'll be a huge audience nationally for that too. Right. I'm one of those people who has no idea what the Eka Festival is. <laughs> And it's okay that you don't. Okay, it's truly a Brisbane thing. It's like it's our big show where the country comes to the city. <laughs> okay. Well, um, you know, tough call for people in Brisbane. I think everyone else in Australia will have a simple one. They'll be getting around the TV, um, watching that match on Saturday night as we tank on either Morocco or France. And there's been some very interesting... Uh, Maybe not the right word, but yeah, developments in the deadly wild mushroom story. So yesterday we reported that three people had died in Victoria after eating wild mushrooms in a meal last weekend. Since then, the woman who cooked the meal has spoken out. Turns out she was the former daughter-in-law of one of the couples that died. Devastated about what's happened. Can you tell And me? the loss to the community and to the families and to my own children have lost their grandmother. Yeah, so that's the 48-year-old Erin Patterson. She says she didn't do anything, but she's now being investigated by homicide detectives and her children have been taken away from her while the investigation takes place. Um, The children were also present at the meal, but like her, they did not present with any of the symptoms um, that killed three and left another fighting for his life. So police have said they're keeping an open mind and it could all be a tragic accident, but the investigation continues. We've had a development too in the investigation of a fatal house fire on Russell Island near Brisbane that claimed the lives of a father and his five young boys. So police are now saying it requires further scrutiny. The property burst into flames on Sunday with a cause yet to be determined. Uh, We've now found out that police had been called to that property a few times before and they're now planning to question the surviving mother of the children who's still in hospital Hospital, along with another woman who was at the home but also managed to escape. And a meteor has lit up skies in Victoria overnight. So a number of people have taken to social media posting videos from Bendigo all the way to Melbourne and some people in Melbourne heard a boom before it broke up in the sky. Followed by a massive sonic boom that just shook um, places all around us. I love this. People are saying it was even an earthquake. People were really freaking out about it. I've looked at the videos. It does look pretty spectacular. Mm. Um, And a few astrophysicists have already had a look at it and they say for something that size to cause, you know, that much light in the sky, it would have had to have been sort of the size of a golf ball or so. Uh, But we are in meteor season. If you are a bit of a meteor nerd, the night to see this particular meteor shower called Perseid is about to hit us. Um, the 13th of August is the night where you can see the most spectacular light show. In Australia, you can see it. Up in the north is the best place to go. Um, but unfortunately, we have a full moon scheduled that night too. So that might take a little bit of the uh, the magic away. It's, it's much better in the, in the pitch dark. All right. Time to get into the history of the World Cup with a former um, Australian soccer player who has been there for the whole journey, ended up rising to the top of FIFA and helped build the Women's World Cup. So our guest for this briefing literally kicked off the dream for today's Matildas. 
Moya Dodd played for Australia in FIFA's first ever women's tournament back in 1988. It was a game in China, a very hot day where they beat Brazil 1-0. Now, since her playing days, Moya Dodd climbed the ranks of the game's executive. Eventually, she became a member of the FIFA Executive Council for four years, which is a huge achievement. Moya, thank you so much for joining us. How did that tournament 35 years ago compare to the one we're witnessing now? I imagine it didn't have quite the same crowds or TV ratings. Yeah, well, I don't think it was on TV. I think uh, huh. they did record it. Someone's got a VHS of it somewhere, which wow. you might find uh, uploaded onto YouTube. You know, it was experimental. FIFA didn't yet believe in women's football back then. I mean, this was only the 80s, right? So it wasn't that long ago, but they had a pilot tournament to kind of see if it would be any good. I think they were they were skeptical about the quality of the play. They were they were skeptical about the ability to draw crowds, but you know it proved that there was quality there. And uh, shortly afterwards, they announced that they would be holding um, the first World Cup in 1991. But actually, even then, they didn't call that the World Cup in the very mm-hmm. first edition. Uh, It was called the FIFA World Championship for Women's Football for the M&M's Cup. It was the most bizarre name you could imagine, but they didn't want to call it the World Cup because that meant the tournament for men and they didn't want to dilute that name because it was, you know, it it had such brand value. They were, I guess they were worried we might ruin it. You know, I think if anyone is surprised about the growth of the game, I think they just need to look back 100 years ago to when before women's football was banned in England for 50 years and was banned in many countries, but in the immediate post-war period after World War I, the game was hugely popular and it had become popular during the war because the men were away at war, the women went into the factories, uh, they were out of the kitchen, into jobs. You know, it was, it was actually a big gear change socially as well for women to be doing that. And they played in the factory football teams. Wow. The war ended. The women left the factories. The men came home. But they still kept playing football. And it maintained its popularity. And at the end of 1920, there was a match in England, uh, in Liverpool, where there were 53,000 people inside Goodison Park watching two women's teams play. And there were another 14,000 outside who couldn't get in. Mm. And then they banned it. Wow. So... It's not really a surprise to anyone who knows that history that it would be popular again because it's not the natural order of things that people don't want to watch women's sport. It's not the natural order of things. It's something that we and our parents and our grandparents all got used to because there were bans in place and women weren't able to play it. In fact, they were banned from playing in any FA-registered ground. What was the justification for the ban? I, I had no idea this was even a thing. Well, the minutes showed that they passed a resolution saying that football was unsuitable for ladies and ought not be encouraged. Mm. And off the back of that little statement, uh, boom, you had a ban for most of last century. And, you know, to have women earning money playing sport, it was okay during a war when they donated, but to have them making their own money as professional footballers was kind of a little bit beyond the pale for uh, for people at that time. I mean, mm. you know, this is a time when women were struggling to get the vote and, you know, it was, a, it was a very different world. I don't remember as a kid ever seeing 
women's team sports mm. on television. Okay, so Moya, let's fast forward to the current World Cup we're witnessing here in Australia. Um, a lot of us who aren't that familiar with the game are blown away by the TV ratings, also the amount of people buying tickets and turning up to games, you know, over 80,000 for the Matildas games. And then on average across all of the games, 30,000 people turning up. And, you know, these are from for small countries playing each other sometimes. These are not necessarily what you'll consider high-profile matches, but still incredible turnout. So is this World Cup a particularly strong one, or is this just a reflection on how healthy the FIFA Women's World Cup is every four years? Yeah, the Women's World Cup grows year by year. I mean, edition by edition, it gets bigger, and every time we go, oh, my God, this is the best ever, <laughs> and then you have a better one, you know? So... It's not particularly a surprise to people who've been part of it for a long time. It's very heartening, though, because you think, yeah, actually, we haven't been wrong about this. We've, we've all, like, there's plenty of true believers around who are just nodding and smiling in mm. satisfaction, thinking how great it is to be able to share the game with so many Australians and so many people around the world. The profile of women's sport has lifted a lot in this country. It's uh, all boats are rising with the tide, and it's great to see women's sport in so many codes and so many sports uh, rising. But I think there's also a lot of newbies, if I can say that. There's sort mm. of the trubies, the true believers, yep. and then there's the newbies. And it's incredibly satisfying to see so many people now enjoying the game and going, well, I didn't I didn't know this was so great. It's like someone who's reading a book that's fabulous and you've known it's a great book and then your friend reads it and they're like, that was a great book. And you're like, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, you can kind of feel that sense of buzz around the country. So if this World Cup is sort of a, an evolution of the, the strength of previous World Cups, is this a show that rolls through town and, and wows us with its, you know, incredible results, the sporting spectacle and, as you say, production? Or is this something that really has a long-lasting impact on the game more broadly and particularly here in Australia for, for present and future players? Well, it's got to have an impact, right? I mean, there's so many people seeing it for the first time. They're not just going to turn away and forget it after what they've seen uh, there's so many kids who'll be dreaming of these moments. You see kids everywhere in their their little Matilda's hoodies and their mm. their scarves, and you know those things last a long time in the, in the memory of a child. You have childhood memories. I do, and you know these kids are laying those memories down now. So I think, of course, it's going to stick around. I think it's a challenge for all of us in the game to make the most of it and make sure that this does carry on. Mm. A few things strike me about the the careers of these players. Um, one is the pay disparity where you've got Sam Kerr who reportedly is earning over $3 million. Then it um, it drops down from there. You've got Ellie Carpenter down at around 1.1 and then it sort of goes down. Some are earning four, 300. Then at you sort of say top 20, you're about 100 a year. So there's quite a big pay disparity there. The other thing is that pretty much all of these players have to go and build their careers overseas or, or a large part of them at, at that level. Do you see those sorts of dynamics for the, the careers of these players changing? Are we going to see more Matildas sort of rise up towards the Sam Kerr level? Will, will we see an increasing amount of their careers being able to play here at home in front of Australian crowds? I think the challenge for women's football is getting to that point where you're a full-time professional because that's when 
You don't need to worry about your part-time job. You don't have to stand around in a shoe store all day and then go to training in the evening. You know, if you can get over that bridge and get to the point where you're a full-time professional in a club where you have good support, you know, medical, psychological, nutritional, you know, all the rest, then that's when you really see a gear change. And I think that has been the biggest driver of improvement in the quality of the product has been the fact that the best players here you will see playing in full-time professional leagues, pretty much all of them. So there'll be very few players who aren't full-time professionals who you see turn up in the latest stages of the tournament because it's just very hard to keep up when you're a part-timer. But I think the growth of the A-League women in Australia is going to be very exciting as well. The competition has moved to two full rounds in the coming year. So it's going to go for longer. The clubs will be committing more. And, you know, hopefully the fans will really get into it mm. as well. I mean, you can see some great football every weekend. You don't need to wait for a World Cup. Yeah, so how do we do that? How do they get that right? How do you get the sort of excitement that we've seen at the Games of the World Cup transferring to these regular A-League women's matches? Well, there's some great examples overseas, actually. I don't know if you've heard of Angel City Football Club, but it's the new club in Los Angeles that started out just a couple of years ago. They're in their second season. They didn't exist three or four years ago, and they have taken the world by storm, actually. They, they've they done reasonably well on the field, but off the field, they have become the highest earning women's football team in the world. So they earn more revenue than Barcelona, than wow. Leon, than Chelsea. Uh, from a standing start, and they've got some great owners um, who you might have heard of, Natalie Portman, Mm. um, Alexis Ohanian, otherwise known as Mr. Serena Williams, a lot of the former U.S. women's national team players, Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, and a lot of those people have been out here watching the World Cup uh, as well. But their thing is, firstly, that they focus on it so much they don't have a men's team, so they are 100% laser-focused on growing their women's team. And they're also very purpose-driven. So their philosophy is, well, we're here to win games. We're here to be a football team. But we're also here to make our society better, the city that we live in. So 10% of every one of their sponsorship contracts goes to a social impact project. So for example, DoorDash is a sponsor. Mm. And in the last couple of years, they have, so 10% of the value of that contract goes to helping feed the hungry on the streets of LA. And they've served over 700,000 free meals to people on the streets of LA through the sponsorship that they have with Angel City. And this is bringing sponsors in the door like you wouldn't believe. I mean, they have signed up over $50 million worth of sponsorship over the first three years. That is more revenue in sponsorship alone than Barcelona make for their women's team, including gate money, including sponsorship, uh, and including broadcast money. So, you know, there is there's something special about women's sport mm. and something special about the fans of the game, and that is that they are very purpose-driven. They're very brand loyal. Right, it's a lot you know, of heart and soul. I think they're with you. Yeah. It's heart and soul. And, you know, a long time for women's sport, there was no money. It was just heart and soul. So it's very heartening to see that that is something that survives through this age of professionalism and long may it live. I mean, you'll find that these audiences are incredibly valuable to sponsors as well. Who wouldn't want an audience that never riots, that doesn't Hmm. shout, you know, racist or sexist or homophobic things from the grandstands, who's brand loyal and who buys into your purpose? That was Moya Dodd. 
former FIFA executive and also executive of the Football Federation of Australia. And some fascinating history there. I can't believe the game was very popular in England and then banned in 1921. Crazy. Now, in terms of riding the the popularity and the attention that's come from this Women's World Cup here in Australia right now, I guess we'll all have to wait and see how the Women's A-League goes. It kicks off in November. So hopefully there's going to be a massive boost in, in ticket sales and TV ratings for that competition. Listener.